You're listening to the Bethel University Chapel Podcast, recorded from the Everstwar Chapel Fine Arts Center in Mishawaka, Indiana. Thanks for listening. Hi, guys. I think we're past, I think we're past introductions at this point. I feel like I've been to chapel more than some of you guys have been by now. I think it's, I've been here three or four times and multiple times each visit, so I thank you. As a single person, I'm always happy to get asked back for anything. So any single people here? I know, right? It's true. It's true. But anyway, it's great to be here, and thank you for showing up after reading my book. Many of you got the book, and, uh, and uh, that might explain some of the empty seats here. Like, we're not going to hear her uh, this time. But no, seriously, Sean, glad you could make it. He's been absent the last handful of times I've been here, so... So no, it's all good. I'm just oh, I'm totally. He's the kindest, best chapel person I know. I can't believe I just totally just did that. But I love Sean, and I know you guys do. How many of you love Sean? Are, you, are some freshmen are like, wait, which one is Sean? Right? No, we're we're past the freshman phase now. You're almost done, guys. Three months. It's incredible. How many seniors? All right, how many seniors have, still have no idea what they're planning to do with their life? <laughs> a lot of you. All right, uh, uh, we're talking about leadership today, by the way. Uh, the chapel focuses on leadership, and uh, we're going to be spending some time with some of you guys, hopefully, later tonight uh, at the leadership um, time together and tomorrow morning. I don't know, what, what do you guys call it, a conference? I don't know, or uh, at something. Anyway, I, um, we have a leadership crisis in this world, in our country in particular. And I think uh, many of you are aware that we uh, are in an election year. And you don't have to look far than the election to know we have a leadership crisis. But I'm not the only one who thinks that. Uh, in fact, uh, a poll in uh, December of 2023 showed that 85% of 2,100 respondents, it's a lot of people, uh, that's a pretty big poll, uh, thought that there's a leadership crisis in government, 85% of those who were polled. Uh, in terms of the boardroom, you know, businesses, 78% of people thought that there was a leadership crisis in uh, the business world. Um, and what about the church? <laughs> We're Christians. You're at a Christian college. We should be interested in that. Well, Christianity Today, interestingly, just published an article last month uh, that talked about how well people in the United States trust their pastors and clergy, and we're not doing great. Uh, they found that people trust their chiropractors more than they trust their pastors. How did we get here? Uh, wh what is behind this leadership crisis? And uh, I've been thinking about that. It seems like that's the first question that we should be asking before we get to how to solve it. Um, and, 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 and I hope I don't offend anybody when I read what I wrote yesterday after my drive here. Uh, but I, I really believe it's because we have in the last, uh, I don't know, 10 years maybe or so, certainly uh, I would say this has been since the advent of social media, but we have raised up a culture of uh, narcissistic, self-centered, result-oriented, Jesus-naming but comfort-seeking, self-important, self-seeking, glory-stealing, people-using, sin-hiding, fame-focused, size-adoring, prayer-lacking, platform-building leaders who measure their worth and significance by the number of clicks on our profile pages and the number of likes on our posts. We have a problem. And until the church, Christians wake up and understand that we can no longer get our cues on leadership from the world, our strategies in the church can no longer 
emulate the world, we will continue on the path we're on, and it is a path that is leading to death. And for us who know Jesus, we might be like, well, we're fine, but for a world around us who's desperate for the truth, we have to do things differently. And so how, how do you do that? How, how do you get serious about solving the leadership crisis? And this morning, in the few minutes that I have with you, I want you to focus on Genesis chapter 37, and before we can start solving the leadership crisis, I want to present to you that first we have to go back to our place of calling. We have to get serious about our calling. You can argue about whether leadership is a gift or leadership is uh, something that you're born with or something that you train at, but I, I want to look even in a bigger picture about leadership as a Christian, and so it has to start with calling, which is the thing that God has called you to do, and I am very aware that some of you, even you seniors, are still using time in the library on chat, GPT, trying to figure out, hey, can you help me figure out what I'm supposed to do with my, the rest of my life? Like, I understand the tension of how hard it is. I have right now five nieces and nephews who are in their college years, and they are like you, some of them graduating this year who still have no idea what they're supposed to do with the rest of their life. Here's a freeing thing you don't have to know today. You don't have to know your specific calling in order to think about calling. In fact, I'm going to give you three characteristics from the life of Joseph, and uh, it's a long story, so I'm going to give you some highlights. I think by now most people are familiar in the United States with the story of Joseph because over in Missouri they have a play about it, and they've had it on Broadway, you know, the whole multicolored coat thing. So even those of you who are Gen Zs, you're familiar a little bit? If you're familiar with the life of Joseph, can you just like say, yeah? All right, good. Well, I'll give you the highlights. Uh, but Genesis 37, I'm going to start with verse 5. It says, now Joseph had a dream. Now, before we even get further than that, I want to, um, I want to slow down for a second and, 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 and look at this from this perspective. The reality is that though many of you struggle with knowing what you're calling, is one out of ten in this room probably knows exactly what you're supposed to do. And you probably figured it out when you were in grade school and you've always wanted to do that. My brother Nick was like that. He wanted to be a dentist from the time he could say the word dentist, and he is indeed a dentist today. That's why my teeth are so white. He is an incredible dentist, and uh, I'll give you his card later if you're interested in, 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 in getting white teeth. But, um, but, but that's one guy, and the rest of us are like the brothers of Joseph. We spend a whole lot of time worrying about the one guy who has a dream early on. Do you know, even before, I'm going to give you three characteristics in a second on uh, calling, but even before we jump into it, I want to um, uh, just sort of remind you that though, that by, at that point, by the way, J Benjamin is the younger brother of Joseph, who's not really part of this initial story of Joseph, but there's 12 total brothers, so we're going to leave Benjamin out, so there's 11. 10 out of the 11, and then Joseph, I hated Joseph because of his dream. Uh, so let me read you a little bit here, and then I'll comment on that. It says, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said, to, so why did they hate him? Small little footnote. Because his dad favored him, which is not a great parenting strategy if you have kids or if you plan to have kids. But uh, to make matters worth, worse, uh, uh, Jacob, the father, gave Joseph a coat of multiple colors, which was uh, like the worst thing you can do if you want your son to be bullied. But so those brothers had a problem with that, and I honestly, 
say, I can't say that I blame them, but besides all that, I don't know if they had therapists in that era to, to work through this, but so the way that they were through it was that they hated Joseph. And so on top of it, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brother, they hated him even more. He said to them the dream, which again, a great strategy. If you have a very specific dream from God that in a minute you'll see that, that puts you ahead of your siblings, don't tell your siblings. It's not a great strategy. But he, he was so excited about what God had given him. Remember in that day, uh, God spoke to people through dreams. And so he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, many of you know the story of Joseph, so you know that what he's speaking is, um, is going to happen. It's going to come true. And so whether you like that he told them or not, the reality is he's speaking the truth. And so his brothers were so mad, they said, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, and like... What did he do? Well, he tells them and says, Behold, I have another, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, your mother, and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, now here's an interesting little tidbit for those of you who read the story and kind of think, man, Joseph is a like sick. Why would he do that? That's not, I shouldn't have, he should have held that back and they're not wrong to dislike him. Let me just tell you this. God had a dream for every one of the 11 brothers. Think about it. Jacob had 12 sons that would become the heads of the tribes of Israel. So while they were worried about Joseph's dream and where they were angry and jealous at what Joseph was experiencing in that moment, they were missing what God was indeed doing in their life and had planned for them. It's so easy to get so focused on what God's doing in other people's lives and in 2024 even more so because we've got that little phone that we can look at and know precisely in every moment in time what everybody in this room is thinking. You might think you're private because you haven't told anyone in your small group or your roommate something. All they need to do is go on your social media and they know exactly what you're thinking and what your dreams are. And it's so easy to focus on that. Do you know that out of the 11 brothers of Joseph, the one who would become in the lineage of Jesus, the one who would bring through the life of David, was born, was not through Joseph, but in fact through Judah. That would be how Jesus would be born through that line. Think about that for a minute. Levi would become the head of the priests. And so those brothers had a calling that you could argue was even bigger than the calling of Joseph. But in that moment, they couldn't even see past the fact that God had given Joseph a dream. That should be both convicting and freeing to some of you. Convicting if you've spent a lot of time worrying about what other people are doing and freeing if you're still not sure what you're supposed to do with the rest of your life. You know, I think about my calling to become, well, I became a doctor, and you could say, well, that's a calling, and, and I kind of stumbled into that, mostly because my dad was a doctor, and I grew up in Lebanon, and people in Lebanon become either doctors or lawyers or engineers, and because my dad was a doctor, I was going to be a doctor, and so I somehow ended up in that, but my calling to do this work, writing about God and teaching the Bible, do you know when the first time I ever taught a Bible study with people where I took a passage of scripture and actually taught it. I was 28 years old. I had no idea that I would spend the rest of my life doing this. I thought I was going to be a missionary doctor. And yet somehow God in his 
miraculous ways would open a chance for me to teach when I was 28. I didn't even feel called to do this until I was 30. Most people who have done a work for God of any nature haven't figured out that work till later on in their life. In fact, I was thinking about people like, like some famous names that you might know that have done respectable work, like Tim Keller. He knew he was a pastor, but do you know how old he was when he published the Reason for God book, his book that landed him on the best-selling list that became sort of his seminal work? He was actually in his 50s. I think he was 52 when he wrote that. John Piper, everybody hears his name and knows about him. Do you know that John Piper preached the message at Passion that has became also the one thing that brought him a lot of attention? He was 42 when he first preached that message. After that message, he ended up contributing to 60 books. Think about that. Most of their work didn't, didn't even start till halfway through their life. And so if you're sitting in the seat and going, man, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life, you're okay. But here's what you do need to know about your calling. Three things. Number one, your calling is bigger than you can imagine. If a God who spoke the world into existence in six days, whether you agree with that premise or not, I do, by the way, whether you think it's literal six days or a figurative six days, you can look at the moon at night on a night like today, which, by the way, thank you for arranging for the weather to be as beautiful as it is. I was worried about coming to Indiana. For, I'm spending the winter in Florida. I was worried about coming here in February, but you all did good. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sean. I think that's you. You're, you are so kind. If a God who puts the stars in the sky, who speaks the world into existence, gives you a calling or a dream, any purpose for your life, you can believe that it's going to be bigger than you could ever imagine. In fact, even Joseph, when he tells the dream, I don't think had a clue how big the dream really was. Like, I think he understood that there was a dream of, you know, prophetically you could say maybe he understood that he was going to be ruling over his siblings. I don't think he had a clue what was to come. What God has called you to do will be impossible to achieve without God. If there's a dream that you have right now, and you think, man, I got this. God gave me this idea, but I can do this on my own. It's likely not your life calling yet. Whatever it is that God is going to give you, you don't even know yet, because if you knew, you wouldn't even be able to do it. Like, it's going to be a work that will demand you to lean on Him. So what God has called you to do is not about you at all. It's about the lives of everybody around you. You're going to see that in a second. And so, so, first of all, that is the first characteristic of your calling. It's bigger than you can imagine. But here's a second characteristic. Your calling is harder than you can anticipate. That's not meant to be bad news. That's actually important news because every one of you, even the one out of ten of you here who already knows what you're supposed to do, you're going to leave the walls, and there is a little wall outside, so I can use that term. You're going to leave the walls of Bethel University. You're going to hit the real world, and then things are going to go awry. And rather than panicking and thinking that you are wrong in the area of your calling, I want to warn you, because look what happened to Joseph right after he gets the coat that his dad gives him and two dreams that God had given him. It says his brothers, in verse 12, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flocks at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And Joseph 
I mean, you got to love this guy. He doesn't, he's not worried about going to see his brothers. He wants to serve. He's got a servant's heart. And so he says to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Now, admittedly, if it was me, I'd have been like, I looked. They're not here. I'm out. Right? I mean, I may have looked like for a couple of extra minutes, but that's it. So the guy says to him, uh, the man says, they've gone away. For I heard him say, let us go to Dothan. Okay, at that point, I would have been like, oh, darn. I'm going to go back and tell dad. I tried, and the guy said they went away, and I'm not sure where, and I'm done. But no, not Joseph. So he goes after them, and he finds them at Dothan. So what kind of welcome did he have? This man who has been selected by God to save the people of Israel, as we'll see in a bit. Well, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him. Listen, listen, not to beat him up, not to ridicule him, not to jeer at him. They conspired, it says in God's Word, to kill him. We're not talking about strangers, people from another political party. We're not talking about people, they're just his brothers. It should make you stop and it's shocking that they went from a coat that their dad gave the brother to now they want to kill him. So they say to one, and, and mind you, the 11 who God is, or the 10, because Benjamin's not there, who God is going to use in a mighty way. They're worried about something that's not even a real worry, you could argue. And so they say this, he says, here comes this dreamer in verse 19, come now let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. So the oldest, Reuben, heard it. He rescued him out of their hands. He thought, a little tidbit, he thought, because you'll see in a second, it wasn't really a rescue. He says, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So he thought, okay, he's like the guy in the culture who wants to have one foot here and one foot there. You can't make up your mind. You know, by the way, you have to live by conviction. This never works, this plan. We saw this play out at Harvard University, where the president gets outed because she didn't want to upset either side. You have to live by conviction. So Reuben's like, I'll just be friends with them and then I'll save him. Well, it doesn't work. So they sit down to eat. Before that, let's back up a bit to verse 20. It says, 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, remember, he's just coming to check up on them. It says, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then, listen, then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, 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 who would be the one through whom the Lion of Judah would be born. <laughs> so says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us tell him, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And so Reuben, the wishy-washy brother who can't decide, unstable as water, later his father would say about him, 
he returns to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy's gone. And I, where shall I go? All he cares about is his own self. What's his dad going to do? He's the eldest. He's supposed to be in charge. So they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered the goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the rope of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Think about that. Your own dad mourning for his favorite son and not one of the ten brothers breaks. I don't know if you have siblings, but like I couldn't even lie to my parents about what I did two minutes ago. Like there's always a tattletale in, this, in our family. Like what happened here? Where all the brothers are on the same page, they hate what's happening to the man, young man, who has been given a dream, a calling that is bigger than any of us can imagine. Well, the reality is that Joseph's calling is meant to be harder than he could have anticipated. This was no accident. God intended for Joseph, by the way, a little other side of it, if you're a theology major, you probably know that Joseph is actually a picture of Jesus Christ. And so very much an illustration in the Old Testament, the closest illustration of any Old Testament figure of what was to come in Christ Jesus. So you can do the math later and think through every aspect of the story. But for now, for the intention of this few minutes that we're together, I want to remind you that the opposition as you pursue whatever calling God ends up giving you that is bigger than you can imagine, that that opposition will come from the least likely places. It should be no surprise to us that so many Christians are wounded at the hand of the local church. When we look at the numbers of people, that, a book that came out last fall, I believe, is called Dechurched. It's a sobering read if you haven't read it yet. It is a book that talks about how many Christians now still follow Jesus and love Jesus, but they just don't trust the church. They don't go to church. And that's besides the number of people who used to go to church who now are considered nuns, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, like the nun, but, but N-O-N-E, who just don't believe anything. It should come as no surprise to us because that is precisely where the opposition will come. This morning I was reading the Gospel of Mark and Jesus, the people, the only people at the beginning of his ministry that didn't believe him were his own family. They thought he was crazy. And he said a prophet is not without honor except is in his hometown. And so the opposition will come from the places you least expect them. The opposition will come in more painful ways than you expect. And the opposition will always threaten to put an end to your calling. Who would have read the story to this point and thought, man, Joseph's life is just getting started. Most of us would have been like, man, you're done. There's no hope. What, what kind of dream? You had a dream for God? Let's see how that plays out over in Egypt as a slave. That boy was canceled so quickly, not one, even maybe Joseph for a minute might have wondered, is this really happening to me? And yet that is the season that God starts working on Joseph. And little by little by little, and some of you who will be here tonight, we're going to delve into that season and how God uses this very opposition to shape Joseph, to prepare him for all that he still had prepared for him. 
Some of you know what you're supposed to do in your life, and you're living in that season right now. And, and that could be a student, or that can be a graduate person, or that can be a professor here. Listen, you're walking in a season going, I don't see it. I don't understand. How did I land here? Listen, I've spent most of my ministry years asking that question and wondering, God, what went wrong? And I'm finally coming in a stage in my ministry where I go, I'm finally understanding what God has been doing in me. The best is yet to come is not a gimmick that, that charismatics throw on social media, hashtag, the best is yet to come. If you are in Christ and God has called you, and he has, to a calling bigger than you can imagine, listen, the difficulty you're living through right now is not an accident. It is meant by God for your development and good and for the good of others around you. What's the third characteristic of this calling that you and I have been invited to by the way, we're not called to bigger as in size because you have my first point could be so, 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 so confusing, like bigger numbers. No, I'm not talking about bigger numbers. I'm talking bigger power. My nephew yesterday texted me and he was given a talk or something. And by the way, both, my, both of my nephews are still single. If you're a gal who is interested, let me know after. But one of them just got a two-year extension to play football at Duke, so you'll be able to watch him. On, social, on, on the television, so if anyone still watches that, what's a television? Well, on your, on your, on your iPads, whatever it is. Sorry, I'm dating myself, but, <laughs> but, but he texted me and said to me, he said, uh, how, the, tell me, give me an example of how God uses your weaknesses to become your strength. And, and I think I understood what he was asking, but I had to make the point. I said, God doesn't use your weaknesses to become your strengths. He takes your weaknesses and shows his strength in those weaknesses. Do you see the difference? We think, man, I feel so weak in that area. I got to get stronger there. God, didn't you say you're going to get me stronger? That's not the plan. The plan in 2 Corinthians 12 is that he steps in and his grace brings in his strength in your weaknesses. Lastly, this calling that is bigger than you can imagine, harder than you can anticipate, and then this, it is far worthier than you can ever begin to think. It is far worthier. So it's bigger, it's harder, and it is far worthier. You see, what does that mean? See, you might have lived the life of Joseph and thought that it was all about ruling over your siblings, but that was not the point. In fact, by the time Joseph would eventually go to prison and and eventually be rescued from prison and become the leader of Egypt. I'm giving you a lot of like, like little, you know, whatever spoiler alerts here, but, but if you already know the story of Joseph, then that's not surprising to you. And so eventually the brothers come to him and he indeed is the ruler and they're indeed bowing before him. And then he reveals himself to them. And at the very end of the chapter, he gives the Old Testament, Romans 8, 28. And if you had any question whether the life of Joseph meant anything for himself or for others around him, he makes it clear in Genesis 50 when they, when they wait till the dad dies and they're so scared that now that Jacob's dead, he's going to kill us. And they come to him, Bay, you know, we love you. We didn't mean anything. And he says to them, he's grieved. He cries. And he says, how can you think this about me? And then he gets to verse 20 of chapter 50. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. All right, but don't stop there. He says, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Now that's worthy that is the furthest thing from self-seeking. 
Platform building, fame focused, size adoring, comfort seeking. That is the very opposite of that. That is a man who has endured hell to get to the place God has always meant for him to be now, fully developed and prepared to live that, but now aware that this is not about Joseph at all, but about everybody else in the world. That's the calling that God has invited you to. Is it worth it? Well, you tell me. So God, we ask you, even in these moments, to convict us of living our lives exactly like the world is living. We who know you are no longer living by faith, God. We're living by numbers. We're living by the pressures and the strategies of a culture that doesn't know you. We ask you to forgive us. God, we ask you for being much like the brothers of Joseph who couldn't see past our noses because we're so worried about what you're doing in other people's lives. God, I ask that even in this moment, you would not only free us from our idolatry and from our sin of comparing ourselves to others, but I ask that you would give someone in this room a, such a heavy sense of your calling on their lives, all of it, God, the bigness of it that can only be accomplished by your hand, the difficulty of it so that they would have the perseverance to endure to the end, but also, God, the worthiness of it that lifts up the name of Jesus so that an entire world, Father, would start to see that those who follow you are not a ridicule because we serve a God who is far more worthy than we've given you space in our minds to be. So rule over all these things. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lena. Thanks for listening to the Bethel University Chapel Podcast. Subscribe to the podcast and get more information at chapel.betheluniversity.edu or check us out on the iTunes store by searching for Bethel University Chapel.